Welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you for listening this week. I'm your host, Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. If all else fails, make them laugh. That's been my philosophy my entire life. People love to laugh, and at the Madison Theater, we have hosted many great comedians over the past 10 years, and some of the country's funniest people. Today, we've brought four of them together to discuss their take on life, family, stand-up, and COVID-19. Their accomplishments are too vast to list, so I won't. Three of them have been on the stage of the Madison <laughs> Theater. Yeah, Sean Eli from the Ivy League of Comedy, HBO and Comedy Central's Leanne Lord and Jim Merdrinos. And the fourth voice is a sensational comedian who once clerked for a federal district judge, Karen Bergerin. Welcome, guys. How was and everyone I was, today? And I was at your stage, too. I performed at, the, at your stage, too. Yeah, me too. Oh there too. I totally, well, yeah, I, I totally. But I was memorable. No, it was memorable. <laughs> I was just laughing through it. <laughs> I, I actually Sorry. carried up so I, good he remembered me when I wasn't there. So that's awesome. <laughs> right. Well, Here Jim we, and I have the same act. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that we do. Both Two different perspectives. <laughs> you, you guys, we are going through some crazy times now. I mean, with this COVID-19, staying at home, uh, how is everybody doing? Karen, let's start with you since you've been on my stage before. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, go, I have every emotion every minute. Sometimes I'm just relieved to be alive. I have all that gratitude stuff. Sometimes I'm paralyzed with fear and I feel, you know, sadness at, you know, some of the people that, that I've lost to this um, and irritation, really irritation with my family is probably the, the one prevailing emotion that I have. <laughs> what, what, it's the glue what? that holds us together is our contempt <laughs> for each other. <laughs> exactly. And what about you, Leanne? Yeah, how are you coping? I know you have a cat. You've been dealing with your cat a lot. And uh, how you been doing? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm going to upgrade him to comfort cat. Uh, because he is very intuitive and very sweet and he has the right amount of purrs and he jumps in my lap when I need it. And we watch, you know, Star Trek together. So that's, uh, that's actually very comforting. Um, I, I feel like, like Karen had my answer. I, I feel all the feelings all the time. I, I kind of vacillate between feeling like um, I'm doing too much and then not enough. And I keep trying to remind myself that this is my first pandemic uh, maybe I'll do it better next time. I'll have I'll have a plan. <laughs> Unlike my government, I'm sorry. Is it too soon to go there? No, it's <laughs> never too soon. <laughs> and Jim, how are you dealing? Uh, I'm I'm actually holding up. I I had a really um, I had a bad first few days in quarantine. I lost 11 people in six days. 
and uh, and that was just all the feelings that you don't know how to deal with. Um, and then I started to come out of the funk, and and now I'm seeing people, you know, storm and protest, you know, capitals, and they want to reopen. And and now I just want to stay healthy enough and survive long enough to go out. And when it is when it's no longer appropriate to be socially distant, I just want to get close enough to those people to beat their asses. Just beat some common sense. <laughs> horrible them, people. Like their parents should have. Yeah. And, and you know, I just, so I'm, apparently right now, what's driving me is spite and bile. Um, other than that, I got nothing. That's a great motivation. I got to apply with somebody on Facebook yesterday who I said, I lost 10 people in this. He's like, what, do you work in a nursing home? Ha, ha, ha. Take care, young lady. That's what he wrote. Yeah. 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 I will will take a side order of bitterness and bile. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Bitterness and bile always works too. And I, you know, I got to say, I, I really feel, and this is a bit shocking for me because Jim, you know, I'm, I've, I've held on to my naivete for a very long time, but I, I feel like we are, we are failing at humanity. We had one job. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I don't understand that somebody could say that, even if the guy thought I was crazy. How but could you here, say that to somebody? Here's yeah, the exactly. one thing I do, I do have to point out, uh, because, uh, <laughs> You know, full disclosure, Leanne and I were married for a very long time, so she knows me probably better than the most human beings on this planet. And she yeah. will tell you, I am not a bucket of sunshine. I basically hate all people until you prove to me I should not hate you. That, that's, that's been my outlook on life. But as, as miserable as I see the masses being, the individuals that are stepping up, you know, the individual stories that are coming out of this, are really life affirming and, and glorious and, and make you go, oh, we can do better. We're just choosing to be jackasses, but we can be better. And that's, it, yeah. it was actually eye opening for me because I always, always assumed everyone would default to the worst human being possible. I didn't think this many people could step it up. And I gotta say, if Jim has a ray of hope here, if Jim has a ray of hope here, it is yeah. indeed the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is one of the signs of the I apocalypse. I live in a small town, and our Facebook page has been alternating between, hey, I have a kid's scooter. Does anybody want it? Who wants to trade paper towels for something else? And, hey, a-holes, put your masks on when you're walking down the sidewalk. Right. So I'm seeing both. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, have you guys been out of the house at all? Like, I mean, obviously to get some groceries and to do, uh, you know, to get paper towel, toilet paper, and stuff. I go like on, that. I go on walks on on desolate streets in Manhattan. Like, I, I would live, never go into Central Park. That sounds crazy to me. I live around the corner from a small patch of woods, and I just walk through the trail there, and then walk around the block and come home, and just to get out in nature and. I'm, I haven't been grocery shopping. I've basically, the only place I've been in the last month is I donated blood about three weeks ago, but I've been having stuff delivered. And I cook, so I've been just baking up a storm. I'm sorry, I just had a question, what? quick question. What is this thing you guys call walking outside? Like what, I'm, <laughs> do we have a bad connection? I'm not sure I understand the word. <laughs> the, the place where sunshine is. Uh, oh, that's actually... actually you know the thing you do on the way to your car? That's called walking. Oh, well, then uh, I've got it covered. 
You do sometimes, you probably do it inside. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, although I, I've taken to taking my uh, my office chair wheels everywhere, pretty much. Um, I am actually planning uh, on getting out this weekend for the first time and going to drive down to the state capitol and cough on protesters. That's that's my big that's my big outing. I have planned for the weekend. You're Very willing nice. to go to Trenton to save humanity? Oh my I god! I will. I will cough on an MFR if it will get them to to show their hypocrisy. Because if I cough on you and you start running from me, then you know that this is real and you're just being a jackass. No, they don't want to catch your cold. It's, it's so weird to me. I just, I don't understand. I mean, I guess, you know, I was trying to think about it because I was thinking some of these people really do live in places where it's not quite hitting them as hard. It's kind of like, as a New Yorker, like I felt really bad for the people in California during all the wildfires, every time there's a wildfire, or even when there's like a horrible weather situation someplace that people die, but it feels very removed. But the idea that I would publicly say, this isn't a big thing or, so, or like make up stink, just it's like, I can't, I, that's the part I don't get. Like, I totally understand not maybe connecting to it if you don't know anybody who's had this thing. But, you know, and even though you see charts and stuff like that on, on the news, if you happen to watch it, you might not connect, but like keep your freaking mouth shut. That's yeah. the part I don't get. I, re- I totally get not connecting if it hasn't affected you. If you're like, some, you know, living in some town where you're blessed, but this, this can happen any, like this could, little pockets of places all over the U.S. have gotten this thing. It's so weird. It's so weird that this is a blue-red thing. I was just going to say, if you look at the history, um, a, a microscopic history, like the last few years, we have been trending toward meanness. We have been trending toward mm-hmm. lack of compassion. We've been trending mm-hmm. toward speaking before we think. And so I, I'm not surprised by any of this, I, but I remain deeply um, disturbed by my fellow human beings, and, but not surprised at yeah. how mean we can do mean. There was an article, I think, was it the New Yorker? I might be getting that wrong. That meanness is the point. I believe was the title of the art. Yes, that's so, the point. Cruelty. Well, it's like thank you. Can we talk about something happier? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I just wanted to sure, jump let's, in. Let's hop in time machine and do that. <laughs> but it, we we are a nation that follows the example of our leaders almost blindly, and we've always been that. And when you see a president that lies and has contempt for the press and basically wipes his ass with the Constitution, this is the product of the stew that he's created. And, and, and we're paying that price for it right now. Right. Like, you know what, on the flip side, that's what makes what we do so important. People are people are exhausted and they are reaching for entertainment. They're reaching for comedy. They're reaching to have their spirits lifted. And so I feel even if I'm not on a on a, a regular traditional stage, I feel like people are starving for what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, let me ask you guys a question about that. You guys are comedians, stand up. You guys need an audience, you need a crowd. I mean, 
you, are you are you guys not starved for that that immediate satisfaction of the laughter and getting up on a stage or are you guys able to write i know you guys are all authors so i mean what are you doing right now to hone your hone your material hone your craft Jim, to be clear and i think i speak for most comics um i would gladly sacrifice somebody to a volcano if it meant getting a live audience back um <laughs> there's not a doubt in my mind but for me the creation has become as important as the reaction. And while I miss the reaction, and I miss that reaction with all of my heart, I really do. Um, and I don't know how other stand-ups feel, but that feeling of a laughter from the audience washing over you as a performer is better than any high I've ever had or, or any feeling I've ever experienced. But, and I miss that. But the creation is what, what is important right now. They're creating something out of nothing. Artists need to art. And that's, that's I don't know what everyone else is doing, but I've, this is one of the most fertile periods of my existence as an artist, just because, you know, I'm, I'm almost finished with a novel. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I started a new podcast that we've recorded episodes on. And I, I, you know, started teaching again online, which is something I, I swore I would never do. You know, but all of these things to to point out that the need and the compulsion to create and connect to art was greater than the need to have that laughter from the audience, even though the laughter is what drives me to do this. Well so here's here's how it works for me. Um, the, the Jim mentioned writing a novel. I've written two novels and you write a novel and it takes a year or two. And then if you get it published, it's a while before somebody reads it. If I write a joke on the way to a gig, I can tell that joke 10 minutes later. And to me, the greatest feeling is trying out a new joke the minute I get on stage and thinking of a joke on the way to a gig. And I've lost that spontaneity because if I write a joke now, it's going to be six months before I get to tell it in front of an audience. And that, that to me is the difficult part. I don't think you actually lost it. I, I think it's just dormant. It comes back the second you have the opportunity again. And I oh, learned but, that. But I, can't, but I can't do it now is what I mean. You can't I'm do it right now. Yeah. But, that, but the talent isn't lost. And I thought after my concussion, when you know they said you'll probably never remember your act again enough to get on stage. And you know three, three weeks later, I'm back on stage. You, you don't lose that. You know, that's inbred in all of us as artists. Jim, I was at that I, I show and you just told the same joke over and over again for an hour. Pro probably, <laughs> but you got to laugh every time. I, I, I want to take a second just to applaud the creativity of my fellow artists because everybody's feeling that creative cabin fever. How do we get out when we can't get out? And so you cannot log on to Instagram without seeing 50 billion people going live, you know, and other people watching them. So there's been a, 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 an explosion in live broadcasts, live streaming, you know, people trying to fulfill that need that way. Uh, I did my first Zoom show. I was invited to do a Zoom show for a little club in California called Comedy Oakland. 
And if you're not familiar with Zoom, you know, they had a hundred people can be in the room at a time. And that, that, you know, we got the comics got there early. We logged in. Then the audience logged in 15 minutes later. And then someone had to MC like, hey, everybody, we can hear you, you know, mute your microphones or turn them on so we can hear you laughing or clapping, but not necessarily cooking. And I watched the show and I got to watch the people in their little boxes and they were responding. You could hear the laughter, you could hear. And it was, it's different than being in a comedy club or a theater. But man, even just that reaction, I had no idea how much my heart and my art needed it. So any way that we can find a platform to somewhat recreate that, it's not exact, but somewhat recreate that, it it really does feed your creativity. And then you get to do that joke that you thought of that morning for that audience. But those opportunities are, those are still being built. You know, those, you know, the pioneers are trying and then it'll come down to once again, you know, the, the old system of, okay, who books that? How do I get in there? How do I get on that Zoom show? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I've done, I've done a couple of Zoom shows. I I have that same, Jim, you said it beautifully. Like, I feel like I had, uh, there's an illness that's been ongoing in my family that I've been really involved in for a couple, about a year now. And it put me, took me away from my writing. Um, And I just started writing again right before this whole thing happened and then it's kind of like when I didn't have to go take care of my mother I was like there's no excuse like <laughs> get get to you know get your butt in the chair so I've been writing a lot um I make stupid little movies first friends I've been teaching and they're actually I, mean, really I, fun. I don't feel bored I'm not bo- bored of yeah it's not no something I'm having I just also want to point out the kindness of the community that we have here. I mean, Sean putting this together and finding an outlet for us this afternoon. I had a question about novel writing totally. and Karen was the first person that responded and said, hey, what do you need to know? Let me help. You know, I, you know I've bounced ideas off of Leanne a bunch of times since this started. We're also a community. We're very much a community. Um, and this is taking away members of our community from us. So if anything, I feel it getting tighter. I feel us getting stronger as a community, which is amazing, you know, because we're all solitary artists that have a really rich and deep community together. That's wonderful. I want to go back to what Sean was saying, though. If you don't have that spontaneity of writing a joke and then trying it out immediately, you know, do you lose those jokes or do you you know you don't do you think they always come back to you I don't I don't believe in lost jokes I believe in lost ideas and opportunities if you think of it and you didn't write it down and you didn't capture it you told that idea I don't want you and that idea will go to somebody else and then you'll see somebody else doing it and you're like well what happened and the idea will be like you didn't want me (laughs) I feel it's a relationship I feel the same way about jokes so if I can't get on stage tonight in the way that I'm used to getting on stage, my I'll use then that as a writing exercise. What can I turn that into a meme? Can I put that on Twitter? How do I get that on Instagram? And those are very different mediums. And so how do I make that bit work in those different forms of social media where I can still connect with my audience? I have not stopped creating content for one day 
since this has happened. So it, 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 that that thing that's that just keeps happening. But I was already in that habit because I don't know how not to. Mm-hmm. Well, I've run into and, a bit of a snag. I was me, working on a new bit about something that happened to me, and um, my best friend passed away, and he's in the joke. So I've just been letting it sit there, and when I feel better, I'll go back to it. But uh, some stuff I just don't want to address, right? Yeah, you can. You can always and, and I mean, go back. I. Yeah, I I've been dealing with you'll my fi- parents as well. It'll you know. find its way back to you. Yeah, oh, yeah eventually. I, I, I have a whole section of jokes about my parents and the aging process. And I thought I would never do those jokes again um, once I lost my dad. And then I got an opportunity to do dry bar comedy. And I'm like, this would be the perfect salute to my parents. Set. And I did those jokes. No one and no one in the audience knew that, you know, my mom is really ill. No one knew that I'd lost my dad. I got to do those jokes with joy and in the moment and watch people laugh and find the parallel with what they're going through with their aging parents. And so it was it was a tribute and an opportunity and a joy. You know, I just had the exact same thing. Jim Karen and I and three other comics shot a TV special last year. And I, Jim and I were working out which jokes to include in the special because we had a lot more footage than we could fit in the amount of time we had. And I said, I want my jokes about my parents who passed away to be in the special because mm-hmm. the jokes are about my parents still being alive. And I wanted to just get those jokes done. And then I could move on to writing jokes about, you know, other things. But I wanted the jokes about my parents to be to be used as soon yeah. as I could. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. also getting to what Angela was saying about, you know, do things go away? I don't think they go away. I think they transcend. I, you know, I, because part of what I do has always been being a comedy historian. I started looking at comedy albums from the 70s and, and 60s and seeing that people like Cheech and Chong and Fireside Theater were releasing comedy albums that weren't in front of a studio audience that were just produced. And, and, and you know, uh, hopefully by the end of, of April, uh, in the next 10 days, if I can finish the last of the recordings, there's going to be a one-hour Jim Mandrino special that's released on YouTube that is just comedy stories not in front of an audience. And the audience will be online. The audience will be on YouTube. But it'll be a stand-up show because I'm a storyteller as a stand-up. It'll just be shaped differently. And it'll have the feeling of a fireside theater. You get more creative when you have limitations. If you're an right. artist, you know, artists find a way to art. And, yeah. and, and, you know, if you put up a big old brick wall here, I'm going to go over around or through it. I don't <laughs> care how it happens. Or stand in front of it sound. with a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> well, they but took it, a, they took a, that wall. That's a great piece of comedy history that I don't think most of us have in our, in our brain there. I, cause I didn't, and I think I, I appreciate comedy from way back. I didn't know that. So that's, that's awesome. And something that we can rediscover, you know, many of us. Cheech and Chong's uh, Big Bamboo album, which was, you know, show my age, first comedy album I ever bought. Um, None of it was done in a comedy club. All of it were produced bits and tracks. Derek, Ooh, you, 
You've changed my afternoon now. <laughs> now we're all, it's like suddenly Cheech and Chong is going to get like this huge, like, it's like it's going to like be trending on all the albums. Yeah. But not just them. I mean, we're recording this on 420, so I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and look at artists like Derek and Clive, uh, you know, which is Peter Cook and Dudley Moore from the UK. Their first three albums, they did one live album. Their first three albums were all studio albums. Beyond the Fringe was all studio albums. Not, you know, they, they released the live show that they did in Edinburgh, but their albums were studio albums. You're um, making my head explode with Nickel, possibilities. This is, Nick, oh my gosh. Nichols and the May. Fringe. Yeah, and Nichols and May's first two albums were studio albums. They, they, they weren't live events. So, you know, it, water will find an exit. And art is water. It's fluid. Talent is fluid. It's going to find a way out. It's going to find a way to market. Now, whether or not the market likes it, I can't control that. I well, could release this right. on YouTube and eight people will watch it. Or I could release it on YouTube and two million people watch it. I don't know. And, and nobody knows in this society. Yeah, but one thing I know about YouTube is sometimes the worst things get 5 million hits yeah. and some of the best, you know what I mean? Because it's just, yeah. it's sort of uh, fodder for... It's like a car wreck. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it is. I, so, I, I do want to let you know that now if I get 5 million hits, I'm going to feel bad. Right. Am I a car wreck or am I... Uh, what is happening here? An artist. <laughs> exactly. Listen, the funniest home videos was just repeats of people guys getting hit in the nuts by their little kids by accident and people watch that over and over again so mm -hmm. that's that's where we are there's nothing like getting hit in the nuts i'll tell you i know and like uh, by your kids. I, <laughs> <laughs> so i just want everyone to my listeners to realize i'm speaking with leon lord jim uh mindrinos karen Burgreen, and sean eli uh we're talking about comedy we're talking about uh COVID-19, we're talking about all the wonderful things. Uh, let's go back to just getting started in stand-up because this is not an easy thing. Now, you know, Jim was talking about albums and stuff, and I remember, I mean, listening to, believe it or not, Woody Allen's stand-up from the 60s and Richard Pryor and all these things on albums, but it never made me want to go into comedy. I mean, it, I think it's, a, it's an art form that is is saved for the few. So how did you guys get started? Let's start with Karen, because Karen, you have an interesting story. You actually went to Harvard, and I'm sure your parents were thrilled that you were going to Harvard and never thought you'd really? return to comedy. Well, it's funny because, you know, when I was at Harvard, like I never really did any, I did theater stuff, but I didn't, the comedy thing seemed very dominated by men. And I was kind of wimpy at the time and easily intimidated. So I just did, I did, I acted, but I directed a lot of like funny plays and stuff. And then when I graduated, I had a, worked in a law firm as a paralegal for a while. And I would like work until like 10 at night because you got overtime. And then I would sneak out to these open mics. Um, <laughs> but it was really at a time when a lot of the people were, you know, comedy has just recently been sort of, described by the general population as an art form. <laughs> it was sort of considered more of like this weird, and the people were very weird, and it was too weird for me as a recent college graduate to be around these people. Like, 
they were nuts. I didn't want it enough. I ended up going to law school and I worked as a lawyer for a few years and I ended up clerking for a judge after being in a firm for a few years. And I was scared. I was like, what am I going to do now? Because the clerkship was so much fun. I was like, I'm never going to have, clerkship is like, you're working with the judge, you're helping the judge like draft their opinions, you're watching trials. It's sort of like being a judge, but without all the like, like the credit or the dishonor, like if it goes the wrong way, like it's, it's like a behind the scenes, a really fun job. I had a great co-clerk. I loved my judge and um, I just, I was like, I'm never going to have a job this good. And a friend of mine was like, why don't you do this comedy thing? Like I had been doing improv for fun. And I, I started going to open mics and I found that I could tolerate it a lot better. And I just thought, why not try this? And so when the clerkship ended, I just got like an independent contractor job as a lawyer, just writing briefs for a law firm for a few years for a criminal defense firm. And then, um, and then, you know, things started happen for me. So I just, I just, you know, it was a question for me. I just really wasn't happy. And I, and I didn't have children. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have loans. I had money saved from working in a law firm. I was making decent money as an independent lawyer. It was like, why, why wouldn't I do this? Why wouldn't I do this? And that's what, like, I remember saying to a friend of mine, you know, I remember I was in therapy and my therapist said, I said, you know, I feel really good about it. Except I'm just so nervous about what everybody will think. Like, cause it's like, I'm just sort of starting from the beginning and it's so embarrassing. And she's like, why would you care about what people would think? And it was like, joy, why hadn't I, why hadn't that sentence not occurred to me? And it was very freeing. I thought, oh my God, like, I don't have to worry about what people will think. And the thing is, I'm sure a lot of people were like, what a kook. And a couple of things happened, you know, inter- interactions I had with people were like, really, you quit law to become, you know, like, rude things that people said to me and I really didn't care. I was just like, yeah, like you're going to be miserable in a couple of years doing whatever you're doing. And I'm going to be like living this kind of hills and valleys thing, which obviously I like, you know, so that's my story. And you're sticking to it. I think it's, I think it's a it. great. So let me ask you one a follow-up question on that. So did you get more material from, your time as a lawyer or from never i no no never i actually never did stuff about being a lawyer people really don't like my stuff about being a lawyer that was funny to me wasn't the sort of like lawyers or assholes kind of stuff that people want to hear it wasn't really my experience the stuff that that fed me was the like whatever experience you have in an office What's it like being in an office with other people, you know, doing the office thing? That was more stuff. But being a lawyer really, it's, being a lawyer is very different from the portrayal of lawyers in fiction and television and movies. Being a lawyer is like, it's just having a job. Like, it's just a job. So, um I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was unhappy with it. It was just like, oh, this is really what it is. Mm -hmm. 
Karen, I'm sorry. Can you share your law and order story? Because I think that's hilarious. Is that um, you? Well, what I, I mean, when I was on law and order and um, so I'm on law and order with Benjamin Bratt and this is, and Jerry Orbach. I was in a scene with them and they were so nice. And it was my first really big thing. And I was so excited. I had actually had a horrible breakup the night before. So it was one of those things where it had more meaning. They were so nice. And we did this scene and like, you know, you get there at whatever hour, they put you in hair and makeup, you sit around. And we did this, I think we did two takes maybe. And then they were like, okay, that's a wrap. And Benjamin Bratt and Jerry who, Orbach, who had been my BFF during hair and makeup, suddenly like disappeared. I uh, never saw them again. And it was so, like, it was so devastating to me because I had been like, you know, that high when you're on like a shoot or something, it was so quick. And I, I you know, you kind of have this idea like we're on the, I'm with the cast, you know, and it obviously wasn't <laughs> but it was really fun. So that's my story. And every now and then I get like 45 cents from NBC Universal. Yeah, I love those checks. I love those yeah. 37 cent checks. That's so good. But I, I got I was, one today for eight cents. And now I was actually thinking of a different story. And if this is not you, I apologize. Uh, but I always attributed it to you where you auditioned. For oh, the and the casting director said I would never cast you as a lawyer. Yeah, because you don't. Look like she goes, you don't look like a lawyer. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I really like everybody in my office kind of looks like me. Like, because, you know, the people, I don't have sharp, pointy features. And you notice that all the lawyers on these shows always have very sharp, pointy features. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> so, sorry, I couldn't figure out what story you were thinking of. I hope I didn't bore you with my Benjamin. No, no, story. not at all. Not at all. I know, I know that feeling of they love you, love you, love you, and then they're gone. <laughs> like life. Life, right. man, life. <laughs> So what got you started, Leanne? Oh, wow. Um, what got me started? I, I, I did come from a theater background. I did theater in college. Um, my uh, undergrad degree is journalism and creative writing. And I got very lucky. I got a job, right? I wasn't supposed to because it was the recession um, and no one was hiring. But I got a job and I got a job that I hated. I was working in corporate communications at a bank, a big multinational financial services firm. And it was as soul killing as it sounded. <laughs> and I was so miserable. And I, 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 I credit being miserable with pushing me to find what I really wanted to do. And it got me back into thinking I want to be on stage, but I had never done stand up. And so I'm a very type A analytical, you know, A plus B equals C type person. So I took a class because why wouldn't I? That'll teach you how to do something creative. And I, I took a comedy class and I got on stage. And it's still one of the best moments of my life. Like I told my first joke, the audience laughed. I forgot everything I was going to say after that because I wasn't I didn't know how to deal with people <laughs> laughing <laughs> and but what the real discovery uh the real discovery for me was that I was comfortable on stage I felt at home I I felt like this is where 
I belong. And I've been doing stand-up ever since. Uh, I haunted comedy clubs. You know, I, I still kept my day job for a long time. Uh, I haunted comedy clubs. You know, I was burning the candle at both ends and just running around the city the way you're supposed to do as a young comic. You know, you just get your, get those reps in. You know, you're going to the open mics. You're trying to get bookers to use you and you build your minutes until you, somebody books you to MC or they book you to feature. And then before you know it, I don't, I shouldn't say before you know it because it's really not that fast. It takes a long time. And I think people, start with this notion of oh I'm funny you know so I'll be headlining in a in a year and it's like are you right <laughs> I'll be on Letterman yeah it's, it's like, I'm gonna be on Letterman it's just so I don't know if it's hopeful or disrespectful I'm not sure which one it is you know well, but I, I tell new comics I say you have to get better to realize how funny you're not because you always think you're funny, and then a year later you look back and it's like, I'm funny now, but back then I thought I was funny and I was wrong. And oh, yeah. that never stops. I know people 20 years in who look back and it's like, I thought I knew what I was doing 15 years in, but now I'm so much better than I was five years ago. Well, you're, you're supposed to be. <laughs> footnote, footnote. Yeah, but no, I, I, I sort of, again, I, I have a background that really blended itself and allowed me to, to use those skills to, you know, at, to, to write and to perform. So. And Sean, since you were talking about, you talk to young comedians, you have the Ivy League of comedy. So what got you started in, in your comic stand-up? Well, Sort of a weird way because I was in the fifth grade play. I don't even remember what it was, but I had three lines and I got shot. And after that, like for the next month, everybody walked up to me and said, oh, I thought you were dead. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, this isn't fun. I'm never getting on stage again. But after college, I started writing jokes freelance for late night TV. And then I met somebody, a woman on a date who said, oh, well, you're funny and you write jokes. Why don't you try performing? And I said, I never want to get on stage. And she said, well, I took this comedy class. I think you should take it. And I took it and I started performing and I, I worked, I was a banker. And at some point I realized I basically had two jobs and brilliantly I got rid of the lucrative one in favor of the fun one. Mm -hmm. And I would never go back. I describe it as my escape from, from working in a day job. Very nice. Sure. Fifth grade, huh? Yeah, getting shot in the fifth grade, that seems a little rough. Grammar school now. It's New Rochelle school's a hood. And Jim, how did you get started in this crazy world of stand-up? Uh, uh, child bride is uh, the best way to describe it. I yeah. knew from the time that I was 10 that I was going to do stand-up. And uh, there was going to be no stopping of me. Uh, at 10, I always loved stand-up, even as a kid. I was one of those freakish little eight-year-olds that would stay up late, listen to the Carson show, and then go to school the next day and do a perfect Foster Brooks impression because he did eight minutes on the show the night before with the other kids looking at me like, you're weird. Um, but I was that kid. But I always loved stand-up. But the guys I was seeing at that age were going back – eight years old, 1972, uh, I'm seeing guys like Foster Brooks and Bob Hope. Occasionally I might see a Robert Klein, but I'm seeing very old school style comedians. And everything changed when I saw Freddie Prince on TV. Everything. Mm. He talked about growing up in a tenement. 
in New York City. I lived in a tenement in New York City. You talk about one parent, you know, having a, a thick European accent. My dad had a thick European accent. He talked about the super being an idiot and, and roaches in the building, and that was my experience. It was it was my life, and it went from something that I I wanted to do to holy crap. There's somebody who lived my life that's doing it, and it what made it better was he was 19. You know, at, at the time when I saw him, I was 10. It didn't really feel like that long because when I'd see the 50-year-old guys doing it, I'd, they're like, oh, that's an old man's profession. But no, now it's a, a young man's profession. And I saw that, and, uh, and, and it was everything. I convinced my immigrant dad to get HBO and, and cable TV in 1976. He made, me, he made me get a job so I could earn the money to do it because I wanted to see Freddie Prince because he was doing the first ever stand-up special and there were four comics on the special with them. And, and my dad sat down to watch it with me and I got to watch it right up until Elaine Boozler said the word shit. And then my dad just <laughs> turned it off, you know, because somebody cursed on his TV. Uh, and, and that was the end of cable in our house. Um, but I, I mean, I was, your father never noticed channel J. Yeah, well, uh, we got it. We got it when you got a box and you got HBO. You oh. didn't get all the channels. You got HBO. I remember Channel J. Yeah, I remember Channel I, J. Too. I don't, I Channel don't. J got me through puberty. Um, but yeah, I had a bedtime. I was like, "What's the Tonight Show? What are you talking about?" <laughs> oh, Greek culture, male child. I got to stay up till any hour I wanted. Yeah. Um, so all of this conspired to when I turned eighteen. I was in college. I started in the theater. Uh, then at 19, I said, I'm going to do stand-up. And a week after my 19th birthday, I waited out the line of Catch a Rising Star. Um, and I, I, I waited out that line in New York City for nine hours uh, with other people that were looking to draw a number. I drew a number which got me on promptly at three in the morning. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the other comics on me was a young lady from Nashville uh, who was on just before me. And after the show, um, I wound up doing the show, getting laughs, and then this back in the 80s, also hooking up with the person I was online with all day. So it was the most awesome job in the world for a 19-year-old. Oh, my God, I got laughs and I got laid. This is amazing. What happened to her? She stopped doing it. She, she quit. So many people stopped. Yeah. So yeah, so, I would more people stop doing it than keep doing it. No question. Yeah. It's so hard. It's like it a is. lot of rejection. It's, it's, it's almost not every not everybody's built for this. I don't think yeah. people realize the level of stamina and persistence that this takes. It yeah. takes love. It takes yeah. love of the art because as I, I listen to all four of you, you guys have this deep love and that you have a great time. And when you're enjoying something, listen, you're going to have your hecklers. You're going to have your, yeah. your bad evenings. I mean, there's nothing you could do, but the love and, and, and the enjoyment of it is what's carrying you through. And speaking of hecklers, how do, how do you deal with that? I mean, there, there's all types of heckling and stuff. You know, someone could be too drunk in the club or whatever and just decide to, you know, speak out. I mean, okay. you, you say the first thing that comes into your head without abandon. A heckler is, is not someone who's trying to be funny and somebody that's trying to wrestle control of the audience from you. Um, and it's about command. So it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't even matter if it's funny. It matters that it's quick and authoritative. I, I, my biggest thing, and comics, whenever they see me do it, are flabbergasted that it works. I literally shush people. 
you know, somebody yells out something, I'll just look at them and go, shh. And grown people being shushed, it freaks them the fuck out. They, and if you're a 35-year-old man with two scotches and you're being shushed, your brain is having a problem processing that. And it works more often than it, it's not. It, it's not about comedy. It's not about them interrupting. It's not even about them disliking you. It's about them wanting the power in the room. And if you're going to be up there and you're going to be the person that says, no, 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 my room, my rules, you, you're always going to win. And I've never had a heckler win, you know, since, since my very early days of stand-up. Because it's just like, nope, we're shutting this down. Yeah. Aaron, well, what, what about you? Have you dealt with things like this? Yeah, I mean, everyone has. Like, I just, I actually don't mind hecklers. <laughs> I mean, if it's a group, that's horrible. Then that's scary. Because it's like if an audience turns on you. But usually it's one person or a table. And... You know, if you, if you don't have to say that much to regain control, I've done this, sometimes I've done my favorite story is I was um, booked once by somebody who was, who was new to comedy, but he was, a, he was in, a, in an industry where he could produce a huge show. So he put himself on as sort of a big opener comic for me at a big show in like a hotel ballroom, which is already trying. And there were, must have been like 600 people in the audience and it was an event for his industry and everyone got really hammered beforehand and people were using it as a schmooze event and they were sort of treating the comedy as if almost like it was music back in the background. So he went, he put on like another person who he knew who wasn't that, it's an experience thing to me, right? So I, by the time I got up on stage, this, it was loud, right? But there was this very polite contingent of people, probably in the first four rows. And I said to them, these people are so annoying. On the count of three, we're just going to scream, shut the fuck up. So I just went one, two, three. They were so happy to do it. Like there was so much energy from them. And, and then I just said, <laughs> feel free to, I said to them, look, I know it's a, sh this is a schmoozing event. Feel free to take your conversation out of the room, but I can't hear you. You're fucking annoying. And you're annoying these people who are trying to listen. And the rest of it went well. Sometimes it's just, they need to be told, you know, there are little things that comics will say like, oh, is this the first time you've ever been out of the house? Is this the first drink you've ever had? Somebody, you were having a conversation and suddenly somebody built a comedy club around you. Like, you know, there are just little sort of stock lines that people pull from within. Sometimes you can tailor it more to what's going on with the particular group. If you're really lucky, you work in a venue where there's a bouncer who will escort the people out, but that is not something you should assume is going to happen. That is the exception and not the rule. Right. Yeah, the best thing I've ever seen somebody do to a heckler was Sam Kennison, who the audience was loud and rambunctious and screaming. And if you know Sam, you know that he could have outshouted everybody. Sam just got as quiet as humanly possible. The louder they got, the softer he Wow. Started. And yeah. they, they eventually shut up so they could hear what he was saying. It's a matter of he understood that that all the chairs are pointed at him and the lights on him and he's got the microphone. So I'm going to set the rules. And, and you learn a lot by watching the older people. Yeah. And now we're the older people. 
but you learn yeah. a lot by watching them do that. <laughs> Leanne, you had your hand up. What, what yeah, I, I wanted to say, you know, to Karen's point, I think uh, what that really points out the need for is a really good MC. Mm-hmm. somebody that because the, the audience comes in and sometimes they're monolithic sometimes they're not you still have to whip them into audience shape you have to set the ground rules you have to understand that you have people who have been this is their 50th comedy show and for some people this is their first or they're only used to watching comedy on tv where they get to talk back to the screen so a good mc will wrangle that audience and get them trained and set those expectations and then anybody that's outside of that is fair game. Anybody, oh, oh, we're supposed to be quiet now. Okay. We're supposed to listen and laugh. Okay. Uh, Cause like Jim said, sometimes people just have to be told what to do. Totally. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. well Sh- Sean, you had your hand up too. You're host a lot of these events. Yeah. I am uh, seeing a lot of shows and I've, uh, Jim, Leanne and, and Karen may disagree with me, but I would say I've been a, both a bad MC and a good MC. And so I, I think I've learned the difference. Uh, yeah. But I mean, as a profession, in a way we've, and I hate this, that we brought it on ourselves by not having people immediately thrown out when they speak up, because mm-hmm. if you do that in a Broadway play, if you talk back, you're gone. But hecklers, we, we've learned to size them up pretty quickly because they fall into a few categories. Sometimes it's somebody who's just so drunk, they don't realize it's not a conversation. And you can give them their two seconds. And then you say, it's been lovely talking to you, but I have all these other people I need to talk to. And then you move on. Sometimes it's a guy on a date and he's annoyed that the guy on stage is getting his date's attention and she's looking up to him, looking up to the guy on stage and ignoring him and he wants to try to top you. And those are a little more annoying because you have to be disruptive. So, but I mean, I can remember I was doing a corporate event a few years ago and here's a lesson in how not to run a comedy show. This corporation had a rule against um, an open bar at, at their corporate events. So instead, the guy who was running it said, oh, we're just going to get a bunch of, of Visa gift cards and we're going to use them as door prizes. And so he bought Visa gift cards. And instead, he went to the bartender and said, it's an open bar until this money runs out and then told the employees that. So, of course, they all rushed to get as drunk as they could before the money would run out. And I'm doing the show and I have about five minutes to go. And I that's the point where I happen to mention that I'm Jewish and one of the guys in the front row stood up, gave a Nazi salute and said, Heil Hitler. And that was, and I, in a second, I thought, you know, I don't need this money. I can just drop the microphone and walk out. But instead I said, cause he'd been disruptive all night, but not that bad. I said, you know what? I've got five minutes left. I will bet you $20 that you cannot shut the hell up for five minutes. And he said, okay. And I said, no, put your, te- put your $20 on the table. He put down a 20. I put down a 20 and he was quiet for the next five minutes. And when I said, good night, he said, ha, I won. And I'm like, best $20 I ever spent. And three other people came up to me afterwards to give me $20. Yeah. <laughs> I only took the first one, by the way. I didn't make a profit from it. But <clears throat> oh, yeah. You should have taken a profit. Can I, um, mo- a lot of heckler stories are horror stories. And I actually, if I can, I can share a sweet one. Um, I was uh, headlining a club in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I just opened with what I thought was a rhetorical question. Like, hey, how you guys doing? And a young man in the audience started answering the question as if I were speaking to him specifically. <laughs> and we start going back and forth. And I notice, I'm, I'm not sure how to say this to not offend people, but he did seem a little off. 
you know, but I'm, I'm listening. I'm engaging with him. And this club did have a bouncer. They did have a heckler policy. And I see the guy kind of making his way to the stage. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I got it. And kind of Sean, like, like what you just said, I leaned over to the guy and I said, sweetie, I would love to talk to you tonight, but can I talk to some of these other people too? And he went, oh, sure. And I go on with my show. At the end of the night, this young man's parents come up to me and they say that their son is, he's an adult, but he's special needs. And they were trying to take him out to different social situations so that he would learn more and learn how to interact. And they thanked me for not attacking him the way they, they were afraid. Once he, the, he, the, he, he and I started talking, they were afraid that that's what was going to happen. But I'm an experienced comic. I know how to read the room. And that's the thing that you've also got to figure out. Where is this? What is this person's intent? Where are they coming from? Sometimes you attack with malice immediately. And yeah. sometimes you realize, oh, he's just sweet. But that, that's also a matter of we're professionals, and that's why we, we do this. Um, there's a, a, a county club in New Brunswick, New Jersey, that I'm sure we've all played once or twice. Um, and for <laughs> no, seven can years, you get me in there? <laughs> yeah, who booked that? <laughs> yeah, I, I might have a hard time getting myself in there. Um, and every year for about seven years, uh, they did the New Brunswick Autism Foundation where it was an afternoon show and they brought out 450 adults with autism to give them a nightclub experience. And they would always put shows together, you know, for these crowds. And I would, I would wind up emceeing them each year because they, they talked, they talked a lot. And there's a difference between someone who's talking to you because either a, they're special needs or B they're drunk, which is just a different kind of special needs. Or, or see, they just don't know any better. And in those cases, you need to have the, the ability to have the conversation to instruct them that they need to be quiet. And or the people that just need, you know, you to just roll up a newspaper and whack them so they don't stick their head in the toilet anymore. <laughs> and and, and it, it takes, you know, Leanne uh, had said that the MC needs to, to be thought of with higher regards. The MC is singularly the most important person on the show. Absolutely. You may, you may have gone there to see the headliner, but if your MC is horrible, your headliner has a lesser show. If your MC is great, then your headliner is free. Yeah. And, and I'm at the point in my career when I take a headline event, uh, I ask them if I can bring someone, they go, oh, you want to bring the feature? No, I want to bring an MC. I want to bring someone that I'm confident with to do the show. You know, that, that's, that's so important what we do. Do they still do it this way in England where their, their headliners emcee yeah. their shows? Yeah. Because yeah. here in the States, they'll sometimes just throw that gig to a newbie comic who doesn't necessarily have that skill yet. And it's, it's trial by fire, you know, I, which is hard for the comic. <laughs> it's hard for the other comics on the show. And it's hard for the audience. Whereas in England, they're like, no, you're getting our best of our best right up front. Somebody and had tweeted a photo of Ricky Gervais emceeing at, at the comedy store in London. Wow. Now, now. Right, except for America. We give our the MC job to the least experienced comic. Yes. I've worked in, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, the UK, Ireland, um, South Africa. They all have the MC as a headliner level comic, not an entry level. MCs are essential workers, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> perfect, Carrie. Perfect. That's changed because when I started, you, you didn't make it until you were an MC. I catch the strip of the improv. 
if you were an MC and catch a ship in the improv, you were a real comic. If you weren't, you you were just some dude doing comedy. And I remember when I got to do the MC spot at the strip, it was there like, I'm undeniable now. Yeah. You couldn't tell me I wasn't the shit. Yeah. You know, because it, 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 that's that's what Bolster was doing and Wolfberg was doing. You know, that that's what that what Seinfeld did. That's that's where that's what I did. did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to MC at the strip all the time, and I remember when like the worst thing is if Dave Chappelle walked in. Oh. Yeah. Because you'd be like, oh my God zero sleep for me because he could do he would go on stage for like four hours yeah the guy doesn't have like the need to go to the bathroom <laughs> yeah speaking of that uh i have a question for the ladies sorry jim and sean but uh we talked you mentioned earlier that when you first got into comedy it was really a man's world i mean when when did it become more female friendly i mean how did you guys did you guys always feel that uh you guys were a step behind. I don't want to get political on this, but I know Saturday Night Live, you know, with Kristen Wiig and, and um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, they really brought a lot of the female comics up. Was it before that? Was it during that time? What, I, I wouldn't call it a step behind. I would say that there was this, it's weird when you come from like a corporate, like, cause I came from the legal world mm-hmm. where, you couldn't say the things that men would say and stand up. Like they'd be like, Oh, like women aren't funny. Like all this stuff was essentially illegal. And um, I already have a woman on the show. Like it was sort of a casting decision, whether you put a woman on the show. Um, There was kind of like, because the people who were booking, even the female bookers were booking with an eye toward whether the sort of 35 year, 25 to 35 year old white guys would be laughing. And they didn't realize that there was this huge market of people that they were overlooking. And I think, you know, you know, as soon as, I think it happened really slowly, like it's still happening where people aren't quite getting it. Um, But I do think, I don't think it was Saturday Night Live that did anything. I don't think anything specific happened. I think as as comedy has become more mainstream and it has become considered more of an art form, people are looking at merit and and stuff less than old boys club. You know, because it's like even at open mics when and this apparently still existed open mics. They were sort of like when I was starting, it was like the male masturbation joke. No matter how many times you did it would get the huge laugh. Um, Oh, if a female comic ever alluded to having a period, they were just considered pathetic like it would be. And I remember I I was like, I don't talk about my period, but it's kind of like. Why would I, why wouldn't you want to talk about your period if that's the kind of stuff you do, you know? And it actually makes me angry with myself that I didn't, I wasn't more personal at the time. But being personal, like I was very observational when I first started and I actually got a lot of attention because of it, even though that's not really who I am, you know? And I just was like, there's nobody wants to hear about me, like a woman going out on a date, but a guy going out on a date, they have insight. That is not the case now, right? Mm. 
Leanne is agreeing with me. Yes. Not yeah, agree. mostly, mostly for sure. Um, to to pick up on what you said in the beginning, you know that people men would say things to you in the comedy world that would not happen in the corporate world. Uh, that still happens uh, because we don't have a human resources department. Uh, we don't have an equal opportunity apart, uh, department. Right. We are on our own. You know, right. and sometimes if we complain, we're seen as the problem. We're the ones that get blacklisted or it's like, oh, yeah, she's she's a complainer, you know. So you, right. you kind of learn how to, you know, stuff that down and just navigate in the boys world. Like you understand when you walk in, you know, there's for every, you know, one female comic, there'll be 20 guys and most of them will be insulting in some way. Or right. talk down to you in some way, and you, I, I, early my early days, I used to walk in and they assumed that I was some comics girlfriend. I'm like, no, sir, I'm on the show. <laughs> like, you have to be just so um, assertive. And I still think every few years, you can almost it's almost like clockwork. We'll have the women aren't funny argument, and then there'll be the flurry of articles and the flurry of tweets and the flurry of outrage, and they'll go, oh yeah, we are funny. Right. And we'll go back. It it it, it keeps happening. I think the difference now is there are so many more women than when I started. Like, I don't know. And they're funny. Like, the new funny. women are funny. Like, and I don't really know where these chicks are coming from. It's like, okay, stop already. <laughs> right. We get it. You're funny. Leave. <laughs> right. But if we also don't, just one more thing. We don't also, there's a different... There's a pressure that I had, and I don't think that still exists now. I remember uh, being told that a certain club did not book women comics because they had one woman. She wasn't funny. The owner got mad, and there was a ban on female comics. This was what I was told when I was being brought in and introduced to that club. So I'm coming in with all this pressure. I'm a new comic. Oh, my God, as a woman, I can't, I can't afford to not be funny. I'm carrying the weight of female comedy on my back. Uh, rascals West Orange, <laughs> you know, and it's like they would never tell that, never say that to a man. No man has ever felt like he's carrying comedy on his shoulders and he could ruin it for every male comic behind him. So I don't think that happens anymore, though. Sean, you were going to say something. You wanted to add something to this. Actually, two things, because I will say I have been the one who had the weight of not male comics, but comics on my shoulders, because a lot of times when I go into a theater, to do shows, they've never had stand-up comedy before. They've had music, they've had dance, they've had plays and musicals, and they've never had stand-up. And I have to make sure the show goes well because they will say, they will decide comedy isn't right. If you book a bad comedian, if you book a bad band, and people say the band is bad, but if you book a bad comedian, they just say comedy doesn't work for our audience. They never have another comedian in. But, you know, I think as far as open mic nights, you discover still a lot of, angry, misogynistic, 25-year-old male comedians. And that's what they talk about. And they never go anywhere. They're, they're done in a month. Right. Not all of them. Some of them <laughs> have gone on to have fabulous careers in TV shows. One that's of true. them. Jim? I, I just also want to say that the one great equalizer that I've seen over the years is talent. I remember being backstage. I was friends with Sam Kennison, and he recorded a special at Dangerfields, and the special had Seinfeld and Rob Bartlett and Sam Kennison, and the person who closed the show was Roseanne Barr. And I remember sitting downstairs in that green room where everyone's talking about the lineup and all the comics looking going, she's the best one on the show. <laughs> and that was peer-to-peer, -peer. And, and and it was it was honest. 
I, I mean, all, all the people in the room just felt like she deserved the honor. So while I think that there, there is absolutely a lot of assholishness in the industry, but <laughs> artist to artist, I think is, is, it has more respect than I think people think yes. it does. Yes. Yeah, I, I think talent respects talent. Yes. And, and one thing I know at the Madison Theater is that we do comedy all the time, but one of our most successful and funny shows is our Mom's Night Out, where it's all female comedians. And it's, the audience is literally... That's the uh, one I get. Yeah, that's right. And it was all women. <laughs> you forgot. <laughs> I was laughing too much. And there was another, we also did funny... Um, yeah, say it again, Sean. Fabulously funny females. That that's right. I thought it was a mom's night out. It was me, Carrie Louise, and Ophira. Yeah. I think Leanne did last year's, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's, it was either Ladies' Night Out or the Long Island Comedy um, Festival. You know, I'm, I'm, it I'm was a Mom's Night Out. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and, and, there, and it was hilarious. There was one guy in the audience, and he just got pummeled. But uh, it was a bunch of Apparently, I need a uterus to get this gig. Exactly. Hey, hey. Don't so, Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't start there. So anyway, I have one more question because we're uh, running short of time here. Uh, who, who let, We'll start uh, with Jim because you're in my upper left-hand corner on the Zoom call. Uh, who's your inspiration? Who is the one person, the one, the one comedian or the, the one person that turned your world around and said, this is it, this is me? Um, well, Freddie Prince gave me the inspiration, but the person that turned me around uh, was a weekend that I worked with Bill Hicks. And I had a show where I thought that I, I killed and he turned to me uh, while smoking copious amounts of pot and eating cereal at three in the morning and said, do you want to know what you did wrong? Uh. <laughs> and I went, yeah. And, and he explained to me about how I'm, I'm doing comedy, but I'm not talking about things I care about. And that changed everything. It changed me from being a comic to an artist. And, and it was probably the most important life lesson I had in the art form. Yes, because comedy is storytelling, isn't it? Yeah. Sean, what about you? Who's um, the person? You know, I don't know that I can name one person because when you start in comedy, there's so many funny people you get to work with. And the thing about comedy is if I'm a musician, I could be a really good musician, but it's really unlikely that I'm going to get to play with, with Mick Jagger or Pat Benatar or Paul McCartney. But as a comedian, I can share a stage with great people. And if, I did, if you did force me to name somebody, I'd say Robert Klein. But there's a lot of really funny people, and I'm thrilled that I get to work with them. I can't stop my leg. I still oh remember gosh. that bit. Okay, Karen, what about you? Um, well, I would say, like, when I was a kid, I was obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with Gilda Radner. Like, oh, beyond. Like, I literally wanted to be Gilda Radner. I didn't really think of the whole stand-up thing until later. And, and, and then I sort of liked the, the kind of template of Seinfeld when I first started. But I really, and Gilda Ratner and Carol Burnett were like the people that, I never thought, oh, I want to be Jerry Seinfeld, but I wanted to be Gilda or Carol, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Gilda Ratner was one of my favorites of all time too. Uh, okay, Leanne. Okay, I'm, I'm going to cheat because I have two people, you know, one from childhood, one from adulthood. And my childhood was I was, you know, flipping channels. And whenever I would get to the brick wall, like, that's what I'm watching like that. I loved comedy. And the first time I saw a black female comedian, I was flabbergasted because, you know, I loved comedy. But then I saw myself. I saw Marsha Warfield and she stood on that stage smoking a cigarette, not giving a damn. 
And I, I, I mean, my mind was blown. I, 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 cu- I couldn't get over it. And what really tickles me is that she's back doing it. We're friends <laughs> on Facebook and I've gone to her shows and we've talked. So she knows how much she influenced me and, and how much love I have for her. And I, I want to say on a personal level, uh, Bobby Collins and I, I've, I've opened for him a bunch and we had a conversation one time because I mean, Bobby is just so energetic and so, you know, all over the place. Uh, and he has such a rabbit fan base. And I had asked him for some advice. Like, why, why wouldn't you ask the greats what they think? And he said something really simple that really changed how I perform. Uh, he said, let them love you. You have to let the audience in because I'm a good, I'm a great monologist. You know, I've got my jokes and I, you know, just, just all I need you to do is laugh. Just, just laugh. But he said, let them love you. Let them in, you know, slow down. It's okay to take in what they're giving you. And it, it that was really my sort of, and I'm dating myself here, the RCA Victor dog moment, like, really? <laughs> and it, it made my performances more personal and my relationship with the audience more personal and it took it up to that next level for me. So I always thank Bobby for that. That was an amazing story. Okay, guys, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank my guests, Sean Eli from the Ivy League of Comedy, Karen uh, Burgreen. We have Leanne Lord and Jim Marindos for chatting with me today. If you haven't had the pleasure of seeing these terrific comedians on stage or at the Madison, you'll have your chance soon, hopefully this fall, or this summer somewhere as we try to create a new audience for these uh, uh, great talents. Also, you should pick up their books and read while you're staying at home and you'll have a great laugh. Their books are hilarious. Uh, just mention your books. I think you have following, following Polly, Karen. Following yeah. Polly and Perfect is overrated. They're both um, funny, uh, light mystery novels with a little bit of a romantic thing. To it. Yeah, right, and Jim, you um, have Jim, you have the complete idiot guide to, to comedy, comedy writing. writing. Mine's yeah. textbook, so you, if you're reading that, you have an interest. <laughs> Leanne, you have dicked jokes and the real women do it standing up, correct? Yes, yes. And uh, Sean, do you have anything else right now? I have a novel, Murder on Page One, and it hasn't been published yet. So if there's an editor or a literary agent out there, give me a call. I'm told. I'm told it's a funny book. I didn't mean to make it funny, but I guess my personality came through. That's right. Funny is funny. Well, thank you. Pick up those books. I think everyone will enjoy a good read at this time. And until then, we'll keep the seats warm for you. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank producers Kathleen the Machine Marino, Eileen Swagger Sweeney, and the VP of Advancement Edward the Terrific Thompson. Technical support and editing by Calvin the Great Guevara Flores, graphic designs by Francis Bouncing Bonet and Sarah Prancing Palazzolo.